from WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, November 2nd. Congressman Jim Himes is with us to talk primarily about this first week with Mike Johnson as Speaker of the House and his positions on the Israel-Hamas war, including anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and domestic terror threats here in the U.S., On that last point, Congressman Himes is the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, so he's in a relevant position to react to FBI Director Chris Wray, warning now of a heightened possibility of Hamas-inspired terror attacks in this country. Congressman Himes' other main committee is financial services, so maybe he has a reaction to the Fed holding interest rates steady yesterday or the strong economic growth numbers. Uh, We're still hooking up our line with the congressman. Let me play this clip of FBI Director Chris Wray. He said in in Senate testimony yesterday that they have no evidence of an imminent threat from a foreign-based terrorist group. But as NPR quotes him, he noted that since Hamas's attack on Israel, al-Qaeda has issued its most specific call for violence against the U.S. in years, while the Islamic State has urged its followers to target Jewish communities in the United States and Europe. Here's that clip of FBI Director Chris Wray. The reality is that the terrorism threat has been elevated throughout 2023, but the ongoing war in the Middle East has raised the threat of an attack against Americans in the United States to a whole nother level. Since the horrific terrorist attacks committed by Hamas against innocent people in Israel a few weeks ago, we've been working around the clock to support our partners there and to protect Americans here at home. We assess that the actions of Hamas and its allies will serve as an inspiration the likes of which we haven't seen since ISIS launched its so-called caliphate several years ago. FBI Director Chris Wray testifying before the Senate. Congressman Himes is here now. Congressman, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks for having me, Brian. You heard the clip. You're the ranking Democrat on the Intelligence Committee. How concerned are you and what actions is the government taking or should it take? Well, um, one is always concerned about the threats of terrorism and um, the director is exactly right. Um, I would tell you right now it's more of a potential thing than a real thing. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, were this conflict to escalate, were um, Hezbollah to get involved, were Iran to really ratchet up its efforts, one of those efforts might be. Um, both to encourage uh, terrorism, uh, and that coming from the IRGC, for example, is considerably more frightening than that just coming from some cleric or or minor sheikh. Uh, and it might even choose to activate terrorist cells, which it has around uh, the world. Now, we don't believe that that has happened in a meaningful way yet, but it is one of the things that uh, I'm sure the president is considering as he as the president continues to work to try to keep this conflict from escalating into full throated involvement of Iran, Hezbollah and other actors in the region. At least part of that, as described there by the FBI director, is beyond political into anti-Semitic. If al-Qaeda, as he says, is calling for attacks against Jews per se, 
Many Jews do, but many Jews do not support the way Israel is waging this war or the occupation before October 7th, but Al-Qaeda and ISIS apparently make no distinction. Any thoughts on that? And I see you reacted this week to swastikas being drawn at a high school in your district in Stanford. Yeah, well, Brian, I mean, it should come as no, as absolutely no surprise to anybody that uh, Hamas and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and Hezbollah are deeply, deeply anti-Semitic. Um, you know, the Hamas charter, uh, you know, cites the stones and the trees will, you know, when a Jew hides behind them, say, come here and kill the Jew hiding behind me. I mean, that, that, that should come as no surprise. Um, what is a little more surprising, at least to me, um, is the staggering amount of anti-Semitism that we're seeing here domestically. Um, and, and, and look, the, to, to put it in the terms you just put it in, it, it is completely in bounds to be critical of the state of Israel, and it's completely in bounds to be critical of the way Israel is conducting, in my mind, um, the attack designed to uh, eradicate an entity which killed 1,400 of, of its people. That's okay. What's not okay um, is to be calling for violence against Jews or to be suggesting that the state of Israel's actions are somehow inherently linked um, to the Jewish people. And, and, and so I, I really do think it's important, and too few people are doing this, uh, is to keep a really bright line between legitimate criticism of Israel, which is as legitimate as criticizing the United States or Russia or Ukraine or anybody else, and never allowing that to blend into anti-Semitism. At the beginning of the clip we played, I don't know if your line was connected yet, um, the FBI director said, we've already been in a heightened terrorist threat state throughout 2023. Was most of that domestic right-wing terror? Um, you know, domestic right-wing extremists have been a very real concern for the last, you know, five, six, seven years. Um, and the rise of that terrorism has been has been shocking. Um, and in fact, over some recent period of time, most of the violence committed in this country has not been radical Muslim extremists. It's been um, uh, it's been right wing white nationalist um, activities. I mean, thank God the numbers have not been high relative, obviously, to what we experienced on 9-11. But yes. Um, and, you know, to, to this date, um, you know, we don't believe that um, Al Qaeda or ISIS um, or other groups are, are capable of organizing a large scale attack against the United States. But obviously, um, the situation in the Middle East bears watching very closely because they may decide to push the buttons, which would, you know, encourage or enable more of that violence. And I also want to acknowledge on the anti-Semitism piece from Director Ray's testimony that he said, when you look at a group that makes up 2.4% roughly of the American population, only about 2%, it should be jarring to everyone that the same population accounts for something like 60% of all religious-based hate crimes, and so they need our help, said the FBI director. Yeah, yeah, and it's been personally deeply, deeply discouraging to me to see um, the speed and intensity with which clearly anti-Semitic behavior emerged, catalyzed, I suppose, by, you know, October 7th and the Israeli reaction to that. Um, but I would have hoped that, you know, after thousands, of, after the many millennia of history of pogroms and the Holocaust, et cetera, that most people would understand how that's, a, how that's very clearly a no-go zone, but it's not. And we see this in demonstrations, again, and let me be clear here, 
it is okay to demonstrate against the activities of the state of Israel. It is not okay to call for violence against Jews, to call for the eradication of the state of Israel, which is clearly an anti-Semitic thing. And it's not just in demonstrations, Brian, it's it's in elite universities. My own my own Harvard College, you know, has has seen horrible examples um, of students uh, and professors articulating explicit anti-Semitism and you know, it's 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 challenging, right? We get into this conversation about freedom of expression in academia. You know, the First Amendment issues aren't challenging here. You know, in this country, the First Amendment guarantees the right of people to say things they want, no matter how disgusting. But, you know, how a university, how a private corporation handles uh, an employee or a student or a professor who puts forward blatantly and explicit anti-Semitic thing, uh, uh, ideas and, and rhetoric, that's a that's that's roiling us right now. About the Mideast itself, the UN and much of the world are debating whether Israel should call, call a pause or a ceasefire for humanitarian purposes because thousands of civilians are being killed. Nobody disputes that it's thousands, uh, even if the exact number is unknown, including their civilians at the Jabalia refugee camp, Gaza's largest. You've heard about this, I'm sure, the last two days. Israel was going after Hamas leaders and tunnels, but where's the moral line for you, and do you support a ceasefire or a pause? Yeah, I mean, let's set aside the UN. I'm not sure they're the best arbiter of these questions. Um, I will observe to you that both publicly and privately, the entire top of the United States government, from the president down to the national security advisor to the secretary of state, has spent the last several weeks urging and imploring the Israelis to not act out of retribution, to not act out of emotional rage, emotional rage which any of us would feel had they had we been subjected to what the Israelis were subjected, and to uh, explicitly observe the laws of armed conflict and to take you know to take into account the humanitarian situation. So, I think it's fair to say that the United States government um, has has daily implored the Israelis in a very emotional moment to be thoughtful about this. Um, I, I do not support a ceasefire, and I do not support a ceasefire because we we can't look at ourselves as moral beings and say that Hamas should escape justice for the appalling crimes, the terrorism, the you know the the events that 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 almost matched the scale at least on one day of the Holocaust that that we that they should escape justice. And nobody has explained to me how a ceasefire would would. Um, comply with the moral necessity that they face justice. That doesn't mean that the humanitarian issues aren't important. My own view, um, and I've expressed this to Israeli generals, to the Israeli ambassador and to others, is that the Israelis should not think about this as a task that must be accomplished in a very short period of time, because that way lies humanitarian disaster. Um, they should think about this as a project that they can accomplish over many years of eradicating this brutal terrorist threat to their existence. And and I have urged the Israelis, in as much as they care what I think, to not forget that, that they need to also articulate their vision for how to solve the problem that Hamas has so appallingly fed on. Um, this fact that millions of Palestinians have sort of not been able to live out their aspirations for generations now. And it would help the world to see the the Israelis as they do the uh, the work of, of of visiting justice on Hamas. It would help 
if they would also articulate a vision for getting out of this god-awful conflict that has you know, consumed generations for, for, for decades. President Biden yesterday said, I think we need a pause. How do you understand that? And do you agree with it? Yeah, I, I have supported that. I think that, you know, occasional pauses to allow for the creation of centers that can receive aid, food, medicine, to allow for centers that will be no-go zones for the Israeli military so that, you know, in a very densely packed Gaza, civilians can go to a place where they know they will be safe. Pauses that would allow for the creation of um, of, you know, humanitarian corridors for, for the evacuation of people who want to leave Gaza. That all makes sense. And I'm not a military tactician, but a military tactician would say a pause is a moment in which um, uh, uh, Hamas is rearming. Uh, it's a moment in which they, uh, you know, any IDF forces that are inside Gaza will be very, very vulnerable because they will have stopped and lost their momentum. But in my own personal opinion, the humanitarian imperative is such that the Israelis should take on a little bit of additional risk in favor of um, the humanitarian imperative here. Leon in Atlanta. You're on WNYC with Congressman Himes. Hello, Leon. Hey, good morning, Brian. Um, Second-time caller, long-time listener. I understand what the congressman's doing. He's using semantics. Knowingly is deliberate. It's a conscious decision to do something. If Israel wants to take the war to Hamas, they need to let the women and children leave. You know, collateral damage, I understand. I'm a, I'm a combat-trained, combat-tested Marine Corps officer. I understand collateral damage. But killing over 3,000 children and bombing areas where you, that are concentrated, families, women, and children, that's not the route to go. So they need to have a corridor where these people can leave, women and children can leave. Because what they're doing, it's, it's, I mean, it's just it's crazy. Well, Israel says they are trying to establish a corridor, right? An area in southern Gaza and now to some degree across the border into Egypt? Well, they have to do it because, I mean, from my perspective, is it, is it anti-Semitic to criticize genocide, which is going on? And this is from a race of people who faced genocide during World War II. So they, they need to let humanitarian aid in, food, water, and medicine, uh, and let the children and women leave. Leon, thank you. Congressman? Well, Brian, I don't, look, I don't want to get overly legalistic about this, but there is absolutely a difference between knowingly and deliberate. It's the difference between first and second degree murder. It's the difference between a crime committed with malice aforethought, which we take much more seriously than a crime that is not committed with malice aforethought. Nobody ever went to war in the United States, amongst others, has gone to war many, many times not knowingly uh, killing civilians. World War II, which we generally consider a just war, was a war in which we killed hundreds of thousands of civilians. When you bomb a rail line of the Nazis, you know that you're going to kill some train crew and others. So, so nobody, unless they're an idiot, goes to war saying, I am not knowingly going to kill civilians. That's a fact. And that is different than saying, I'm going to deliberately kill civilians. That is a very, very different decision. Now, by the way, you can be a pacifist and say, because you knowingly kill civilians, you shouldn't go to war. And by the way, I have deep, deep respect for the pacifists, even though I generally disagree with them. But there is a profound distinction between knowingly and deliberately. And that is, quite frankly, the difference between the Israelis 
and Hamas. Um, and we cannot allow that distinction to be lost. Again, it's a distinction that echoes through our entire legal code in the concept of malice aforethought. Um, and, and you can be outraged, as, as the caller generally is, at the loss of civilian life. All of us should be outraged, but that doesn't mean we should allow our thinking to collapse into blending a concept which is very clear in law, very clear in the arguments around just wars and unjust wars, which is the difference between knowingly, which any adult goes into a conflict knowing that there will be innocent life lost, and deliberate, which is the decision to take innocent life as a strategic matter. There is a distinction there. Moving on for our last few minutes. What's your one-week impression of Speaker of the House Mike Johnson? His own politics obviously are very far to the right, but he presented in his acceptance speech as someone who wants to work with Democrats and find common ground, to use that term, and also said he wants to pass a continuing resolution to avoid a government shutdown with a deadline for that coming in two weeks. How has he governed in week one, as it appears to you? Well, um, it's too early to say, Brian. Look, I, as a Democrat, um, I am profoundly concerned about what I know about his background. Um, hard, hard right. Um, you know, out on the forefront of taking away women's reproductive rights. Uh, I've been heartened to see that he's come around on the issue of Ukraine aid. But on the other hand, um, I think he set up a system by breaking Israel aid from and humanitarian aid, by the way, he took humanitarian aid out of the Israel support bill, which I do not support for all the reasons that we've just talked about. But I'm I, I you, you hear me being a little waffly here because, you know, time will tell. But so far, what did we do yesterday? We did a, you know, a resolution to expel George Santos, which failed. There were going to be two censures of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Rashida Tlaib, which failed. Um, it feels to me like we ought to be in this very perilous moment operating in a more bipartisan way um, and in a more real and adult way than at least our first legislative day back this week has been. Do you see any specific sticking points on the horizon on avoiding a Thanksgiving week government shutdown? Well, I, I'm concerned by two things. Look, I, I'm, I'm very well aware that people have passionately held views on all of these issues, but it is important to pass a package for aid to Israel, for humanitarian aid, substantial humanitarian aid to the to Gaza uh, and to Ukraine. That's my opinion. And what the new speaker has done is he had said, we're not passing Israel aid. Uh, and by the way, that doesn't include um, humanitarian aid unless you guys agree to reverse a democratic policy priority. That's the money that we gave to the IRS so they could go after tax cheats. It doesn't seem to me right to be doing that. And it doesn't seem to me right to be holding Ukraine aid hostage to them achieving what strike me as profoundly unhumanitarian goals on the border. And the speaker has said that we'll pass Ukraine aid just as soon as you guys give us what we want on border issues. Now, let's have the border conversation by all means. We should do that. We should have done that 10 years ago. But let's not say, let's not hold Israel aid hostage to achieving some crazy desire at the IRS, and let's not hold Ukraine aid hostage to us caving on your uh, border plans. Did you say the House version, meaning the Republican majority version of aid to Israel, excludes humanitarian aid for the Palestinians? That is correct. The Democratic Party is 
uh, unanimous behind the notion that any aid package must include very substantial uh, humanitarian aid to the Gazans, uh, and the Republican package, which we will vote on later today, excludes that. The Republicans will ask, and you brought this up, why not tie border security funding to Ukraine funding? Are you against border security funding? Of course I'm not against border security funding. Um, it's important. But ultimatums is how we drive this country into the ground. And if the ultimatum is we're not going to stand with Ukraine against a murderous totalitarian dictator who will not stop in Ukraine, by the way, because we want you to pass border security money as we define it. What's next, Brian? When the Democrats have the majority two years from now, how are the Republicans going to feel when we say we're not going to pass the debt ceiling or pass the military budget unless you give us the Green New Deal? You know, uh, let's let's take right. these things separately. And but not if you agree on the policy, theoretically, you could look past the ultimatum and say, okay, yeah, we have common ground on border security funding, so we don't like that it's tied to Ukraine funding, but yeah, we can go with that because we're okay with the policy. Or maybe you're not okay with the policy. Well, I'm not okay with the policy as the Republicans articulated on the border. Look, you know, this is the party that brought you family separation, that has the remain in Mexico thing, which of course is just a way of making our poorer neighbor deal with the problems we don't want to deal with. So, so Brian, let me put it this way. If I had any confidence at all that, that there was a lot of common ground and that my Republican uh, colleagues would say, oh, okay, well, we found a nice little compromise on the border, so let's do Ukraine aid. If I thought we were in that world, I would say, okay, I'm mm -hmm. not happy about that, but let's do it. But, but look, I've watched the border debate in this place for a decade and a half, and you know that just ain't happening. We're, our, our coffers are now empty with respect to supporting Ukraine. There's a great deal of urgency to it. So by all means, let's have, by the way, politically speaking, I actually think the border is a is a is a um, liability for the Democrats. So I'm all for yeah. trying to fix it. But let's not use it as a grenade on the table, uh, you know, as we talk about Ukraine. And by the way, last question about the border. Is there a contradiction or some hypocrisy in American politicians, including Democrats, saying we can't absorb 100,000 asylum seekers who've come to the New York area in the last two years from desperate situations in Latin America? But we're demanding that Egypt take in a million Gazans at the snap of our fingers. Is there a contradiction? First of all, I'm not exactly her, sure who is saying those two things. Um, but I mean, let me outline the principles by which I would think about this. Look, Egypt and Jordan are both very unstable countries with real problems. Jordan already has a couple of million Syrians or million and a half Syrians in it. So just as a let's set aside the morality of it, let's be very, very careful about about destabilizing Egypt and Jordan. Um, you know, with respect to our own border, um, you know, one would hope um, that the greatest and most powerful country in the world would figure out a way to deal with humanely with the um, many hundreds of thousands of millions of people who are here, including, by the way, giving them temporary rights to an employment. You would also hope that we would figure out that we do need a secure border. Look, I think we should have a lot more immigration in this country. It'll solve all kinds of problems for us, from social security to more innovation to economic growth. But it has to be legal and regulated. A country can't just throw its borders open uh, and say, come you know, under any circumstances. Congressman Jim Himes, Democrat from southwestern Connecticut, Fairfield, and a little bit of New Haven counties. Thanks for coming on. We always appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brian.
Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.